0: There we are. One of the biggest challenges for any parent is trying to get your children to go to bed. I mean, they're always wanting to play 24-7. They never want to stop and shut down. So trying to convince them, hey, you really need to lay down and rest for a while, that's a difficult thing to do. I mean, it just seems like they never go to bed willingly. They always go to bed reluctantly. Well, I think one of the reasons why children resist bedtime is not just because they want to keep on playing, they never want to see this day come to an end, but sometimes they resist going to bed because late at night, when everything's quiet and dark, and they're lying still in their bed, that's when the scary thoughts come to mind. See, all during the day, their minds are preoccupied with other things. They're, they're busy playing games, riding bikes, talking to their friends, watching their favorite cartoon, but late at night, when they're all alone in that room, and they've got nothing else to focus upon. The body is shut down, but the mind hasn't, and they begin to wonder, Could there be some monsters hiding in my closet? Could there be some monsters hiding underneath my bed? So how do you help? How do you take away the fear? Do you come into the room and say, hey, there's no such thing as monsters. I'm going to show you. And you open up the closet door and you turn on the light and you push back the clothes and you step inside and say, see, you see, there's nothing in here. And then you get down on the floor and you pull up the covers and you look underneath the bed and say, see, there's nothing here either. There's no monsters in this room. Now, this all makes perfect sense to you. It is so logical. But that logic does not work with a child because at that moment, they're not thinking with their mind. They're thinking with their heart. You see, they are convinced that the monsters only come out when you leave the room. I mean, hey, the monsters may not be real to you, but those monsters are very real to your child. And so just telling them, hey, don't be scared, that doesn't help. It does not take away the fear. So what is it that's going to make a difference for that child? Well, your child needs something else to focus upon. So you say, hey, I'm just going to stay in the room. I'm just going to sit here on the edge of the bed, and I'll keep my eyes open so you don't have to you go to sleep and i'll stay awake and that way when the monsters come out i'll get them before they ever touch you and immediately the child begins to relax and a few moments later they're sound asleep and why because the danger is gone no in the mind of that child the danger is still out there but now they're not worried about that danger anymore because now they know somebody they love and trust their dad their mom sitting right there beside them, sitting there to help them. Here is somebody who is more than capable of dealing with that danger. Now, I think we need that same blessing too. Have you ever noticed how frequently the Bible tells us, don't be afraid? It mentions this over 300 times. Why? Because God knows even as adults, we still get scared. In fact, what's really fascinating to me is almost every single time when God says, don't be afraid, then he goes ahead and tells us why. Here's why you don't have to be afraid. He says, because I'm with you. The most frequent command given in the Bible is this, don't be afraid. But the most frequent promise given in the Bible is God telling us, you're not alone. I am with you. And here's the proof. Mark chapters 4 and 5. You see, Mark chapter 4, verse 35, and all the way through chapter 5, you have 50 verses. And in those 50 verses, you have four stories, four episodes, where we learn the four biggest fears that people had in the ancient world, the four biggest threats to their life, the four things that they had no control over, the four things that would keep them up at night, the four things that had them most terrified. Natural disasters, demons, and incurable illness, and death. But in all four stories, Jesus shows up. And because he's there, and because of the things he's able to do while he's there, because of the miracles that he performs, he takes away the fear. You see, when you know that Jesus is here, you don't have to worry anymore. Why? Because now instead of being focused on the problem, you can focus instead on him, the one who's going to help you solve that problem. Now, I want you to see how this works. Today, we're just going to look at the very first story, what you see in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. So if you've got a Bible, take a look at this with me. Mark chapter 4, and I'll start with uh, verse 35. That day when the evening came, all day long, here's Jesus. He's been standing in a boat. He's got this huge crowd sitting there on the shore and the hillside. And he's standing in the boat because he wants to make sure everybody can see him and everybody can hear him. And all day long, he's been teaching. And we've had a sample of that teaching earlier here in Mark chapter 4. But now the sun is going down. The day is coming to an end. He finishes with his teaching and he dismisses the crowd. And as he dismisses the crowd, he turns to the 12 disciples in the boat and he makes a request. He issues a command. Jesus said to the disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. Let's go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, first, that sounds pretty harmless, but it isn't. Jesus is asking his disciples to do something difficult. You see, if you go down to chapter 5 and verse 1, you see what what he has in mind, the destination he has in mind. He wants to go to the region of the Gerizines. He's going to foreign territory. He's going to a place that is predominantly Gentile. He's going to a place where Jewish people are not welcomed, nor are they appreciated. He's going to a place where what they value, what they believe, is the very opposite of what a good, godly Jewish person would value and believe. Yes, Jesus is on a mission. He wants to bring the gospel to all people, Gentiles as well as Jews. But if I'm one of these 12 disciples, I'm not excited about this trip. I'm not looking forward to this. Jesus is bringing me to a place that I'm gonna, that's going to make me feel very, very uncomfortable. But notice, on the part of the disciples, there's no resistance, no protest. Jesus says he wants to go. Okay, we're not excited about it. He wants to go. We'll go. In fact, there's no hesitation at all in their obedience. Notice how that's brought out in verse 36. And leaving the crowd behind, they, the 12 disciples, took him, Jesus. So the 12 disciples took Jesus. Hey, Jesus wants to go to this place. We're going to honor that request. And so they took him just as he was in the boat, meaning Jesus, he's been in that boat all day long. He doesn't even take time to get out of the boat. Hey, fellas, before we head off, let me hop out, go back to shore, pick up a few things, and then we'll take the trip. No, Jesus wants to go right now. And if he wants to go right now, immediately they let the anchor and they set sail. And then Mark has this detail, and there were some other boats coming along with him. So, the 12 disciples are thinking to themselves, man, we're headed for this big challenge. I'm not sure. I've never been to a place like this before. I've heard all kinds of rumors about this. Oh, I don't know. I'm kind of nervous. But then they get thinking, you know, it's going to take us a while to get across the lake. So, before we even worry about that challenge, let's just just sit back and relax for a moment. And that's when something unexpected happens. Verse 37, and a furious squall came up in the greek language it, it literally says a great storm it uses the word mega it's the greek word mega and that word's going to be used three different times in these seven verses so this is no ordinary storm this is a storm of major proportions it's violent it's it's life threatening look how that's brought out here it says and the waves broke over the boat so there was nearly swamp the water's coming in faster than what they can get it out I mean, this boat is about to go down, they're about to sink, they're about to drown, they're about to die. They are in dire circumstances. Where is Jesus in the midst of all of this? Verse 38, Jesus was in the stern. Now, that's important. He's in the back of the boat. He's in that part of the boat where they have a little platform, a little bench. That's where the helmsman sits, the one who steers the ship, the one who navigates the boat, the one who says, this is where you need to go, I'll make sure that you get there. Jesus is right where he's supposed to be. He's in charge of this. This trip, this whole trip, this was his idea. I know where I want to go, and I fully intend to get there. At this particular moment, while the storm's going on, he's all curled up, laying down there in the bottom of the boat, and he's got his head underneath that little bench, you know, just kind of protect himself from the raindrops. And then it says, and he was sleeping on a cushion. (laughs) When I hear that word cushion, I'm thinking of a soft pillow. That's not what we're talking about. What they're talking about here is this big, heavy sandbag that they would put in this part of the boat to provide some ballast to keep the boat stable, Jesus is the ballast for this boat. And that's what the disciples have got to learn. So think about this. Here's Jesus in the midst of the storm, boat waving back and forth and water coming in and out and rain pouring down. Got his head underneath this little bench using this big, heavy sandbag to prop up his head. Less than ideal conditions for sleeping. And yet he's sound asleep. Why? There's this calm, this confidence. I'm in charge of this. I know where I want to go and I fully intend to get there and I fully intend to bring my twelve disciples along with me. He is not asleep at the wheel like the disciples think. Disciples are in a state of panic and they come back and they woke him up and they said, teacher, rabbi, don't you care? How can you sleep at a moment like this? You seem disengaged, out of touch, like you're not involved. We're about to go down, you've got to do something. Now it's right at this point that I I learned something I think is important. Our faith is not like riding a bike. You know, once you learn to ride a bike, you never have to learn that lesson again. Once you've acquired that skill, you've got it for the rest of your life. Once you've got it, you've got it permanently. Our faith is not like that. Our faith will ebb and flow and come and go and be up and down like a yo-yo. Why? Because we're just like these disciples. See, just a couple hours ago... These disciples were all in on trusting Jesus. Jesus says he wants to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And even though we're kind of oh, nervous and anxious about that, that's where Jesus wants to go. We're going to follow. And they obey. Now, a couple hours later, there's this mega storm going on. And now the disciples are starting to have second thoughts. Now they're not so sure. And they're not convinced that Jesus knows what he's doing. And now their faith begins to fade. It begins to disappear. Isn't that our experience too? <laughs> You know, a couple days ago, you were doing great. Man, you woke up early, and you said your prayers, and all day long, you were living like Jesus. You helped that stranger at the supermarket, and later on in the day, you found an opportunity to talk to your neighbor, and you even shared your faith. I mean, all day long, you're flying high. All day long, you're being this great Christian. Then two days later, you woke up late because the alarm never went off. And man, that immediately put you in a bad mood because it felt like all day long, you're just running behind, so all day long, you're on edge snapping at your coworkers, yelling at your kids, blasting the horn at that guy that cut in front of you out there in the highway. And then you discover that idiot driver happened to be your neighbor, the very man that you just tried to witness to two days ago. And all of a sudden you're thinking to yourself, what's wrong with me? What kind of Christian am I? One day I'm on top of the world doing awesome things for God, and the next day here I am living like a pagan. Why is it my fate's always going up and down, up and down? Because we're just like the disciples. But here's the encouragement. Though the disciples are in a state of panic, Jesus isn't. And though the disciples have lost their patience with the Lord, the Lord hasn't lost his patience with them. And what's going to get them moving forward again? What's going to restore their faith is their focus. See, what they're going to learn is instead of focusing on your performance, how you're unable to manage the storm, no, you need to focus upon Jesus and his provision, how he can manage the storm for you. Watch. Jesus got up. Verse 39. Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And in the Greek, it just literally means quiet and remain that way. And it does. It's quiet and it remains quiet. Instantly, the wind stops and it, the water, was completely calm. That word completely, there's that word mega. Again, here's, here's this great storm, but now because of Jesus, all of a sudden there's this great calm. There, there's not a single wave. There's not even a tiny ripple. It's like a sea of glass. The water's not moving at all. And instantly, it became that way. <laughs> wow. That's very impressive. And I would think if I was one of the 12 disciples, I'm going to be cheering and celebrating. We're all going to be jumping up and down and slapping each other in the back and giving each other high fives and saying, way to go, Jesus. That's not how they react. Watch what happens. Jesus has addressed the storm, but now he needs to address his disciples. And so he asked him two questions. He says to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Now I'm thinking to myself, Jesus, how can you ask a question like that? I mean, the Bible's made it clear several of the guys in this boat are professional fishermen. They've been out in this lake many times before. They've seen a lot of heavy weather, but they've never been in a storm like this. A mega storm. I mean, the Bible's made it clear the the waves are rushing in. The boat's about to go down. We're about to die. These 12 disciples, they got every reason in the world to panic. They got every reason in the world to be afraid. How can you ask a question like this? I think the answer's found in the second question. He says, do you still have no faith, meaning fellas, where's your focus? Let's understand something about fear. Fear means you're living in awe of something. Something in your life has become so big, so powerful, so all important, you can't see or think about anything else. And sometimes that's a good thing. Here's what I mean. You're driving in an ice storm. And because of the icy roads, you grip the wheel and you tread very lightly on the accelerator. You are in awe of the danger that now lies before you. Because you realize just the least little slip and you could wind up off the road, racking your car and impairing the lives of all the people are riding with you. So because of that sense of awe, that fear that you have for the storm, you slow down and you drive very carefully. Your focus at that particular moment, it is super, super sharp. Now, in that kind of a situation, that kind of fear is good because it keeps you out of trouble. It's the same kind of fear that prompts us to fasten the seatbelt and show up for work every day and pay our taxes and study hard for that big exam because we realize, hey, there's a lot riding on this, and I want to make sure I get it right. And so at times when you begin to get nervous and anxious about this, that's, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's okay. It's those nerves that, that motivate you to prepare and do your very best. In this sense, fear is a gift from God. But the fear that can help you can also hurt you. Sometimes that fear goes sideways. There are times, I don't know how it is for you, but there are times in my life when I allow certain things to get too big, too important. Like when you live in awe of a friend or in awe of a relative or in awe of a boss to the point where you're going to avoid ever, I never want to upset them. I want to make sure they're always happy with me. I'm going to do whatever it takes to please them even if they ask me to do something that isn't wise, isn't good for me or even if they ask me to do something that isn't wise, isn't good for them. Hey, because you don't ever want to upset them, I'm going to do whatever it takes to keep this relationship going even if that relationship is moving in an unhealthy direction. Do you see what's happening? Your fear of not upsetting them is now beginning to cloud your sense of judgment. And it's keeping you from seeing the truth about them and keeping you from seeing the truth about yourself. You're beginning to tolerate things that you should never put up with. Now your fear's hurting you instead of helping you. Or you avoid going to the counselor to talk about your struggle with depression because you're afraid of what other people are going to think. Hey, if ever the people hear what I'm doing, I'm going to see David, you're going to see a counselor? What's wrong with you? They're going to think I'm weak. And, and because their opinions matter so much to me in fear of what they think, it keeps me from getting the help I need. Now my sense of awe is all misplaced. That's what's happening here. The disciples are focused on the storm, not on Jesus. They're more in awe of their problem than they are in awe of the one who can solve the problem. They're more in awe of the wind and the waves than they are the one who can control the waves. But that's about to change. Verse 41. It says, they, the 12 disciples, were terrified. And in the Greek language, it literally reads, and they feared with a great fear. There's been this great storm. But now because Jesus is here, he brings a great calm. And now because of Jesus, now suddenly the disciples have this great sense of awe. Oh, you notice they keep asking each other, who is this? Man, I, I thought I knew who he was, but obviously I don't. I mean, Jesus is in a category that we don't even have a category for. Did you notice even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this? Up in the city of Chicago, they have these trains that run all over the city. And there are certain places where they, the trains will run them on these platforms that are elevated above the streets. But part of the problem is this, there's not much space between the two sets of tracks where you have the two trains running in opposite direction. So somebody has to come up there and work on a section of the tracks and here comes a train their way. How do they get out of the way? There's no space, there's no place to go up in those elevated platforms. So, years and years ago, the city of Chicago recognized this. And so, all along those tracks, they began to add these tiny platforms, this little space about three-foot square with a little railing, where now when a guy's working on the tracks and he sees a train coming away, now he's a place to step aside and avoid the trouble, avoid the danger. Here's what's really interesting to me. You know what they call those tiny platforms? You can see them all along the tracks. You know what they call those tiny platforms? Fool catchers fool catchers the idea is this here's this guy one day he's up there you know he's got to fix a section of the tracks but he's not being careful he is so absorbed in his job he is so focused on fixing that problem he's lost sight of the big picture hey there are trains that run up and down these tracks all day long you need to remember that but he is so focused on the tracks he's forgotten about the trains and all of a sudden this giant locomotive comes bearing down on him oh where do i go fortunately there's one of those little Platforms, Here's a fool catcher to help save and rescue him when he wasn't being careful like he should have been. I think that's one of the lessons we learn from this scripture. Jesus is our fool catcher. How many times have we gotten ourselves in a jam because of our foolish behavior? You know, one day you're upset with your boss. He's been riding your case. In your mind, he hasn't been very fair with you. And one day, you just can't take any more. And you lose your temper and give him a piece of your mind. Words come flying out of your mouth that 30 minutes earlier You're just shocked. I can't believe I said something like that to him. And now you realize, because of what you said, your very jobs in general, (laughs) I'm probably going to lose my job because of this. What was I? What a fool I've been. Or one day you bend the truth and you tell a little fib, and at the time it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but now three weeks later that lie comes back to haunt you because now all of a sudden everything's getting blown way out of proportion, and now you got this trainload of trouble coming your way. Man, time and time after again we get in this jam because of our foolish behavior, but here's the hope. In the midst of our foolishness, the Lord remains faithful. Think about these 12 disciples. How do you think they felt after watching Jesus calm that storm? Man, why were we worried about the storm when we got somebody like Jesus in the boat with us? We were foolish to be afraid. And to know that Jesus is in the boat and where he is in the boat. He's the helmsman. He's in charge of this trip. Do you really think he's going to let the boat sink? Do you really think he's going to let us drown? How foolish we were to even doubt him. But here's the best part of all. Even in our foolishness he still remains faithful. Even when our faith is weak, his love remains strong. And in the midst of our foolishness, Jesus is always there, ready to rescue, ready to save. That's why I love what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, by God's grace, I am what I am. Now, you think about that. He could have testified by my own cleverness, I am what I am. I mean, nobody more bright, intelligent, and clever than the great Apostle Paul. Or he could have testified by my own hard work and perseverance. I am what I am. Because there was no more determined or disciplined human being in the history of mankind than the great apostle Paul. But he didn't say that. Instead of focusing upon himself and his own performance, no, his focus was always upon God and his provision. Hey, let's get this straight. This is not about me and the good things I do for God. This is all about God and the good things he does for me. By God's grace, I am. You see, that's what feeds our faith. That's what keeps our hope and confidence strong. When we focus upon God and what he can do for us, we've got to keep our eyes fixed on him. Let's pray. God, we're here today because we really want to just humble ourselves before you. We recognize We're weak and limited, but you're strong. We are so naive, so many things we don't see and understand, but God, you're all wise. And God, on the many times when we stumble and fall because of our foolishness, yet we see that you remain faithful, you are always, no matter what kind of jam, what kind of mess we've gotten ourselves into, you're always able to restore. So God, knowing that, that's why we're here. We are here today to lean on you and to seek your grace. God, today, restore our faith in Jesus, and God, help us to keep our eyes fixed on him. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.